0: Oh, hello. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I am, as always, is your humble host, Osgood. While I was recently rummaging around up in the attic, I found an old scrapbook for my very brief stint as a late-night cinema host. It was a decrepit little station in the wastes of the Midwest. Don't bother looking it up. You've undoubtedly never heard of it just a shack in a cornfield with a tower attached. I hosted a charming little horror movie show on Saturday evenings just before the national anthem. It was called Uncle Osgood's Creature Feature. We showed all of the black and white classics, such as... The Bride of Frankenstein. The Bad Seed. Night of the Living Dead. Day of the Triffids. I am of the opinion that cinema never quite recovered from its transition into color. Despite that, we did show a few in lurid technicolor. Blood Feast, for instance. The Curse of the Werewolf, King Kong versus Godzilla, and a personal favorite of mine, the Valley of Guanji. <laughs> Cowboys, dinosaurs. Which brings me to this evening's story, which comes to us by way of Davide Menard. Trained as a paleontologist and a geologist, Mr. Minar is currently paying his bills as a fiction writer, game designer, and translator. Activities well suited to an insomniac like him. Based in the wild hills of southern Piedmont, Italy, he is the only teetotaler in a village renowned for its wine production. When not writing, he cooks, takes photographs, and writes on his blog, Caravan It'll be read for us this evening by Mr. Steve Sutherland. Here is... Tyrannosaurus text by Davide Manar. Don't believe them. Don't believe
1: any single one of them. The Bone Sharps and the Professors, the Diggers and the Pallonotologers, Big Lord-ass Marsh and his mate Cope. His second name was Drinker, for goodness sakes. Who'd trust a guy with such a name on himself? They're liars, liars, each and every one of them. They come and tell you a time there was when big lizards ruled the earth and then died by the thousands, millions of years back, way before the good God started jotting down notes for his book of Genesis. Big and slow, yeah, and stupid those lizards were, they'll tell you, and had a second brain in their rump, and they died because their time was up and their life force exhausted and evolution was coming. And so, in the Cretaceous, or what the heck they call it, the good Lord, being in sort of a hurry for Adam to be up and about, he done killed the lot without a single afterthought. All of them, all together, all at the same time. We can now dig their bones in the Wyoming Badlands way out west. That's what they tell you. Maybe it was the flood, same as the Quakers believe. All them dinos just plain drowned it. But if so, the calendar does not work out. Or maybe the white god had nothing to do with it, and it's like the medicine man of the wild people in the hills say, and they're just changed to stone by the twin brothers, and their power oak flu, or whatever that might be. Zuni are dead certain about that one. Or it went the way that Brit atheist challenger will have it, and twas in fact a comet. Falling on Atlantis or thereabouts, delivering the big lizard straight to oblivion. No, not oblivion the city in Tejas. Oblivion like dead and gone forever. And what's for sure is just that they're dead and gone. But as for all the rest, I know all of that is just so much trash they're talking. Oh, them being rulers of the world once the Slitherers, I believe it as if it were gospel. And I undersign it, too. But big and slow and stupid, no friggin' way. As for the matter of them having a spare brain up their ass, I will offer no comment. But as far as the comet and the flood and the wild man's big, mighty flu and his thunderbolts are concerned, I say, kids, think again. Because in spite of all the stuffed shirts in Harvard and Chicago and Königsberg the medicine men in the hills, the books and articles, and all the rest of the stories. The age of reptiles ended in the 29th of October, 1879, when the last of the cursed beasts died in moderation, Arizona territory, shot in the forehead with a 44 bullet in a regular duel. Yes, sir, I should know, I was there. Two dirt roads crossing in the middle of nowhere, That was moderation at the time, just out of the hills north of the Gila River. The rains would turn the town into a swamp, but when it did rain in moderation, it did not rain much, and always at the wrong time. A general store, a a post office, a saloon, a sheriff's box, a smithy, and a barber doubling for a dentist and surgeon and gossip mill. Not that there was ain't to gossip about. Nothing grew in moderation. Nothing happened, ever, The dead town waiting to exhale its last breath. Fact was, the iron rails of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe had given the place a wide berth like a drunkard sidestepping a dead cat in a street, and the whole community, such as it was, had missed its train to tomorrow, literally. In 79, there were less than 100 souls living in moderation, even when once a month on Thursday the cowpokes from the 777 ranch hit the joint to get boozed up, be scrambled silly, and to shoot out a few lights. Three of them there were. Streetlights, I mean. And three hookers plying their trade at the Red Queen Saloon. Van Brack, the Bracksmith, called them the three virtues. Faith, hope, and charity. Flea pit that it was, we had our share of well-read folks, you see, in moderation, and Van Brack was one of the best for all his being uh, not properly, well, human, you know. The preacher also came once a month during his round of the outer freeholds, but it made little difference. Sins and sinners were in proportion to the size of the place, and God had time to spare for them all in moderation. So the preacher turned up, the hookers fest their evil ways, the gas lights got fixed, Life went on. Twice a year, the federal hanging judge came to town and criminals were duly hanged. But as a rule, there was none to hang, so the judge would retire to a room with hope and charity and a quarter of the local firewater to deliberate. The preacher usually had enough of faith, but he came more often to town. I mean, we had our rhythms, our rituals. Every day at five in the afternoon, Van Brack the blacksmith closed shop, crossed main road, and did go sit under the porch in front of the sheriff's place. And every day at five in the afternoon, Sheriff Cross would come out on the porch, carrying two mugs of tea, a folding chessboard tucked under his arm. They'd play chess until sundown, then went for a steak at the queen. During dinner, they talked books. He was a character, Sheriff Cross, the... talk of the town was he'd been a privateer on one of those airships of the line during the war and that he'd been at the battle of ziochicalco and that was the reason why he was easy on race issues with hairy folks and mestizo wild men like van brak nam their tails they call them now they say it's more polite or something damn dirty apes most called them back then but not our sheriff oh no Really did not speak much Sheriff Cross did. Not about his past, nor about things in general. And he was tall and lanky with sandy hair and a scar on his chin. We kids were all crazy for his gun. He packed a black gunmetal Remington 44 Flyboy, like from the air service, almost blue in full light with its ridiculous small grip of polished redwood, a ring to type the shoulder strap and the long barrel with its wing-shaped extractor which made it look even more slender. He carried it on his right hip in reverse fashion, like did gunslingers and the dimes and Federal Armor Officers, too. That gun was to us kids like a thing coming from the future, just like the hand-cranked phonograph on the upper deck of the Red Queen, which they put out on the balcony on Saturdays while the hookers fanned themselves with perfume silk and feathers fans called with the embarrassing names the God-fearing citizens walking on the street below. It was hard to remember that slender and gracious as it was, and as future-worthy as it seemed, that black gunmetal thing was still just a machine made to plant a lead ball two inches deep in a three inches thick plank at 20 paces. But Cross had never used it ever since he made it to sheriff in moderation. More like an ornament, some said. When the cowpokes from the 777 went over the top and this happened somewhat often and they threw a few chairs through a few windows and badly handled a woman or started gearing up to set a furry mestizo ape man afire the sheriff would cross the street carrying a five cents axe handle he had bought it at mr Worman's on the day they gave him his tin star and using that simple tool, he'd go and clear any matter that needed clearing. He was quiet, the hookers at the Red Queen said when they spoke about it in whispers by the corsets counter at Warman's store, and precise, they said, quite like a dancer. The word about was he had learned that sort of tricks, moving lightly and handling a stick, from the wild ape men in Lemuria when he was a wingman on a wing clipper as a kid. A load of rubbish like. I think Cross was just one of those guys that are real good at hurting people. The minimum required, but with extreme skill and only when needed and without any pleasure. Which I think is why on the grip of his Remington, he never even rested his hand. And he denied us kids when we asked him to see the gun or hold it or See him shooting at tin cans, coins, stray cats. This ain't a toy, kids, he would say and serious like and we'd just scuttle away. Anyways, the troubles that led to the extinction of the great lizards began about five fifteen on an autumn afternoon, dry under clouds running through the sky, just as Cross started studying the board after Terra Brack's queen opening. Cross played the black the scaly guy entered town with the sun at his back and two pards in tow and it was quite clear from the start he was trouble coming most recognized him from wanted sheets i guess nobody would be able to spell his real name he called himself tyrannosaurus tex and he was a notorious desperado wanted and feared on both sides of the border in Tejas, he came with a substantial reward on his long, spiked head, and they called him Dingus over there, probably because of the fistfuls of sharp teeth he showed every time he breathed. His record was more than respectable. As a youngin' south of Houston, he had set a couple of farms afire, mutilated some cows, and finally shot a marshal in Yuma. After that, he disappeared for a few years in the New Acelan Hills, There he gathered a bunch of common cheros, crazed mestizos, and other scum, and they terrorized the Kashyyyk farms and villages setting fire to the cocoa and cotton fields south of the Rio Grande, and more generally raising a royal stink. Then the T-Tex gang came back north, where it was soon clear that nothing short of Uncle Sam's army could put some salt on the guy's tail, and therefore local sheriffs granted him a certain amount of free hand. A pair of stolen horses and some stable turned to smoke and ashes a better alternative than direct confrontation and the widespread devastation that would come with it. And now, here he was, coming down the main, arrogant-like, his long, thin tail swinging left and right, and a sick, evil light in its slanted yellow eyes, unblinking. He wore a black sombrero with a band of silver and lapis lazuli, the Tejas way his emerald green feathers escaping in clumps from underneath, and a leather Navajo sleeveless vest, also black, setting off the red and blue designs of his scales, a red Toltec bandana around his thin neck and a silver ring keeping it tied. On his belt, a silver buckle, a large portrait of Quetzalcoatl, hung two Colt 45s with mother-of-pearl finishing worn cross-grip style, mirror-shiny, and evil-looking. Emerald and rust feathers hung from his forearms and covered his powerful legs. Silver thimbles encased the talons on his feet and his long, sharp, dominant male spurs. T-Tex came to moderation, and the mane was empty in no time. The horrors on the balcony of the Red Queen retired in good order when the reptile eyed them lascivious-like. The good folks remembered some important engagement needing their attention right then and legged it, and the barber turned his open clothes card on closed and disappeared in the back. In the general store, old Warman placed a gentle hand on my shoulder and pulled me back from the front window and lowered the blinds fast. Only Cross and Van Brack remained, sitting under the porch, and there was the killer lizard with his two pistol arrows. A red man with the day's look and the square haircut of the Anasazi, and a hairy mestizo somewhat worse for wear with a dirty poncho and wolf eyes gleaming in the shadow of his Union gunner cap. Both renegades carried rifles in plain sight, and the Anasazi had an obsidian tomahawk tucked in his belt, three evil feathers decorating it, most likely stolen from a dead body somewhere t Tech stopped square in front of the sheriffs, and thin, short-arms of Kimbo looked around, deliberate and slow. So, this cat litter, he said in a weird accent, is what they call the town of Maderacion He spoke the name the Spanish way. Everybody in town heard him. It had grown so still. Cross cast a glance at his mate and made a slight, almost imperceptible sign with his head meaning, no, it was not worth the worry. Then he stood in his lanky, fluid way and hands on his hips. That's what the sign says, he pointed the way the three banditos had come. A pity you can't read, he added. The mestizo took a half-step forward, pulling his left from underneath the poncho, but T-Tex raised his right hand and clicked his talons loud. He had only three fingers and a thumb, and on a thumb he wore a ring just above the base of the black, sharp talon. The mestizo stopped in his tracks, but kept giving cross the evil eye. Get his killamata, he spat. T-Tex flickered his thin, long tongue through his thin lips. By my side, Mr. Vorman passed a hand over his bald pate. Oh, Lord, he whispered. The lizard kept staring at the sheriff for some long seconds, then turned to the Anasazi. We found a witty one, eh, Cholo? The hillman nodded and laughed, a screechy high sound that echoed up and down the empty road. You're fun, monkey boy, whispered the reptile, a tusk showin' eyes on Cross's hands, which the sheriff kept as far from his gun as possible. They stared at each other for a long moment, reptile and mammalian. You smooth-skinned apes, I could listen to your chatter for hours on end, said the reptile then. Cross shook his head and scanned the dusty road, cast his glance up to the sky, Pity I have to leave already,' he said, plain like that. "'The lizard looked at him from beneath the stiff rim of his sombrero. "'More the pity should we ever come back,' he spat, teeth gleaming, "'and then he let out a long laugh of barking sound "'to chill the blood of a grown man's veins. "'Is there a place in this rat's nest "'the eh? hombre can get a rightful drink before he hits the road?' moderation's are a quiet place said cross the eyes of the geek flickered the kind of place i prefer he said touching a talon to his hat in a mock act of courtesy his partners followed him laughing now everything should have been all right it was not the first time sheriff cross played it safe He would give time to the firewater at the Red Queen to work the desperados on the flank, slow and merciless like the D.T. which followed its alcoholic trail. Then he'd step in, in good time, with ease and his axe's handle, when the compadres were softer and slower and distracted. For good measure, and considering the fame following our current guest, In that occasion, Cross left his gaming table and went back to his desk to get his mare's leg, a short and double-barreler which, together with the tin star and the rocking chair, was sort of a mark of office. He was, in fact, pushing the second slug in his shotgun's barrel when a hell of a racket came from the Red Queen, bangs, shouts, broken glass, screams. We later learned it had gone this way. Tyrannosaurus Tex and his two cutthroats entered the Red Queen like they owned the place. The town and the territory, too. Dwight on the piano watched them over his shoulder and then extracted some uncertain note from his instrument. A couple of the regulars went back concentrating on their cards, and while two cowhands from the 777 at the bar moved out of the way. For once the girls up in the balcony refrained from laughing and shouting obscene endearments to the newcomers. The reptile was not so tall, his chin barely reaching the top of the bar, but Terry the bartender was fast to put three glasses in front of those vertical slitted eyes and fill them with his amber liquor. T-Tex drummed his bejeweled talons on the bar, had Terry leave the bottle, and then picked delicately the glass between two sharp nails and downed his glass by throwing his massive head back a single gulp. The Anasazi and the Mestizo Rifles resting in front of them did the same, then poured themselves some more. The atmosphere was cool, and Dwight had started a happy tune, and T-Tex had left the bar to go and spy the cards of the players. In the meantime, the Anasazi picked a snuff box from his belt, and from inside it he pulled a white pill, which he swallowed with an obscene shiver and a grin. Then he pushed it towards a half-breed, who was pouring himself a second dose of firewater. That was it. The snuff box. Because Terry the Barman, you see, recognized it from its silver top. It was his father's own silver snuff box, which his brother had got as part of his inheritance, and his brother would never have left it. And he managed in the Nuestra Senora de las Rosas trading post in New Atlanta, which he later discovered had been raided by T Tex and his posse a fortnight before. And so, Terry did some maths, and pulled his shotgun from under the bar and let the Anasazi get a full measure of buckshot straight in the face, not wasting any time in discourse. Then he turned the weapon on the Half-Blood, who was already holding his Winchester at the ready. But a bullet from T-Tex's left-hand colt left Terry cold on the shiny surface of the bar. The shock of the impact still gave him momentum enough to pull the trigger, peppering the mestizo's chest and face, just as T-Tex's second shot fired from his right-hand colt, caught Dwight in the back of the skull, forever silencing his piano. Because T-Tex was like that, when he started pulling the trigger, he had some difficulties stopping. He would just stand with his short, silly arms wide, turner like a spinning top and firing away at leisure, eyes ablaze until his iron started clicking instead of barking. Who knows, maybe that was the second brain in his butt getting him going like that. Anyway, in the following sixteen seconds, The two cowpokes from 777 bought it, one caught in the throat and one between the shoulders, quickly followed by Wilbur, one of the card players, shot through the chest, and finally it was Blonde Hope up in the balcony that got a bullet in a kneecap. Two shots went wide, one embedded in a wooden post under the balcony, and the other ringing like a bell against a spittoon by the feet of the wobbly Mestizo. Less than 60 seconds since T-Tex had laid his glass on the bar, And the Red Queens was a butcher shop, the air filled with the smell of gunpowder, six dead and two wounded, and four bullets still to go, and the twin revolvers in T. Tex's small hands. Still holding his rifle and blinded by the blood from the wounds in his face, the half blood staggered out where he got both barrels a sheriff crossed his sawed off and slammed on the dirt, dead like a cartload of stones. The reptile was close behind and slithered out of the saloon like the friggin' lizard he was. Rolled into the main street, both guns ready and jaws open, in the full tooth grin that since the dawn of time had lit the face of his folks as they got ready to munch on a mammal. Cross held the spent mare's leg, and the street was so empty, time kind of slowed down. Cross let the useless weapon drop, keeping his eyes on the lizard, and the gun hit the dirt with a thud we all got like a peel of thunder. Something like fifteen steps away, T-Tex laughed, excited by the alcohol, the smell of blood and gunpowder, his eyes two thin black slits and yellow feverish irises, he whirled his guns around his forefingers and two silver arcs and then reholstered them. Let's see how fast you are, monkey boy, he said time stood still. The whole of moderation held its breath while the lizard stared at the human. little taloned hands opened and closed once. He grinned. Then Cross killed him. A single shot right between the eyes. Slam! No hesitation. No useless moves. The sheriff just pulled his remnant out and shot the renegade dinosaur in the head, killing him dead for good. He was damn good at hurting people, Sheriff Cross was, but as I said, I don't think he liked it. To this day, I'm sure he never saw it coming, the bullet with his name on it, Tyrannosaurus Tex froze, standing on his thin, muscular legs, feathers in his head ruffled by the same wind that was carrying his sombrero away, rolling along the main road behind him. The entry hole was a big black smoking pit in his narrow forehead above the wide nostrils. No exit wound. The bullet probably ricocheted inside his skull for a few seconds. Not that he could care anymore. The lizard's eyes lost their light, but still he had the instinct of pulling his right-hand colt and shoot, death contracting his talon on the trigger. Two shots in the sky, then a click, then another. Again, maybe it was his ass brain. Then his body was shaken by a long shiver, and he finally crumpled on the ground like a heap of dirty clothes. Cross remained there, staring at it, speechless, guns still naked for two or three long, lonely minutes, while everybody found their courage and came out on the street, out from the holes where they had been hiding, from houses and shops, in a weird funeral parade going nowhere. Sheriff Cross left moderation the following morning. Nobody the wiser about his destination. Gone to Frisco, some said, or back to the airships. Van Brack lost his chess opponent, but he later admitted the sheriff sucked as a chess player. Nothing to say about his handling of the gun, of course, but at chess he sucked. With the reward money, when it came, they put the Red Queen back in working order. A new piano player was hired and a mechanical knee joint was arranged for Hope, and from that moment to the day she retired, the blonde became quite sought after by a selected clientele with strange and unusual, sophisticated tastes. Some came especially by a stagecoach. There's sure a lot of weirdos in the world. The lizard's posse dispersed as soon as the voice was out that T-Tex was lying in a cold grave. Most of those ended up with guts eaten up by cheap aqua gardiente in some flea pit south of the border or or sacrificed to some Toltec justice god. And good riddance. We buried M.T. Tex on Booth Hill with a stone quickly done, reading Tyrannosaurus Rex, murderous reptile and renegade, shot dead as he deserved, October 29, 1879. We found out only later he was the last one of his species, genus, or whatever. Pity we did not take photographs of the body like they did with the Dalton brothers down in Coffeyville, Kansas. But at that point, it was a bit late to feel sorry, wasn't
0: it? Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you like the show, write us a review. It would warm my black and shriveled heart. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. This episode was produced in February of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.